0: stand and we can prepare ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 11 through verse 22.
1: Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ
0: We are humbled that you have revealed yourself in the way that you have in the pages of this letter. Lord, it is incredible to think that um, you chose us in Christ before the creation of this world. Uh, Lord, that is incomprehensible, and yet, Lord, we, we believe it because you say it, and Lord, you have not just called us to yourself. You've called us to be in Christ, and in Christ, Lord, you've called us to be something, and Lord, we ask that today as we study this passage in the, the context of other things that are there in the book of Ephesians, that you'll give us a sense of our, of our place, of our identity, of our union with Christ, and then, Lord, the, the results of that and what you have then called us to. And, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, just allow me as your messenger to reflect your truth, Lord, that we would, we would grow, we'd be strengthened, we'd be encouraged, Lord, by spending time in your word today, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Probably all of us can remember a time, and maybe some of you that are in the lower grades, you're living this right now, but you can remember a time when you used to play on the playground, and it was time to play a game, and you wanted to play, but those other kids wouldn't let you. You weren't allowed to. You weren't part of their group. You weren't part of their special group of friends or that particular clique. Maybe they wanted to play basketball, but only certain people they would allow to play basketball. Or maybe you were the kid like me that when it came time to playing basketball or something like that, you know, you lined up against the fence and they chose the teams and you were the one left standing there. You, know? you just weren't included. Um, you were, you might want to say, alienated. This passage that we're looking at today is laced with words, alienated, hostility, peace. There's something going on that God wants us to see about who we were, what Christ has done, and what we are now. And and he's saying it to us through this language of hostility, peace, and alienation. And uh, I think it's important to remind ourselves that our passage here begins with a word, and it's a word, therefore. And of course, we know when you see the word, therefore, you see what it's there for. And ultimately, it's a word that wants you to go back to look before what is being said to comprehend what is about to be said in a rightful way so that we can give some sense to it, that we can give some perspective to it. And uh, we can certainly see the logic of what's going on. And so uh, this morning, I want to begin with what I'm calling the logic of Ephesians. We begin in Paul's book, his letter to the Ephesian church, which, by the way, was made up of not just Greeks, but also of Jews. We see that in the letter. We see that in Acts um, as we, we, we look at the church there in Ephesus and the makeup of it. Um, but he begins with this big picture of praising God for the spiritual blessings that are ours or theirs because they're in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful display of, of God's love and grace and kindness toward us. But it's this, you know—you were chosen, you were predestined, you were redeemed, um, you were <clears throat> forgiven, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit with an inheritance. And, and from that wonderful big picture, he moves then into a prayer. And it's a prayer uh, praying for the enlightenment of the, <clears throat> of the Ephesian believers by the Holy Spirit so that they would begin to understand this wonderful, beautiful gospel. And then he moves in chapter 2, which we looked at last week, and he shows us this, this gospel in, in, a, in a more raw fashion. He shows us um, how individually God has reached down and he breathed life into us. And you remember the, the kind of language that was used there, um, it, was, it was there picturing us as dead in our trespasses and sins. We were like zombies walking around. We were dead to God. And then in verse 4 we have that, that beautiful terminology, but God, and there we see that God entered into us into our world that is, that is being directed by the, the world and the devil and our flesh. And he, he, he raises us, us up. He breathes life into us and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. And then we see what he is actually at work doing. We are his workmanship, it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so we saw in that passage the condition of man. We saw in that passage what God did, how he intervened, and we saw in that passage what then we were, God's workmanship. As we move into our text today, what's interesting is we have the same outline, what we were, what Christ did, and then what we now have become. And so this morning, we want to take a moment to understand why would he repeat it? Why would he say it again? And and the reason is, and I give you this kind of, you know, to to think through, the first one really talked more, I think, not exclusively, but more more individually. He's thinking about the individual person that he has breathed life into. As we move into this next section, he's speaking more about a group. He's speaking about the Gentiles as a group. And he's speaking in, in corporate ways about what's going on. And so what's really important for us to understand is that God has chosen us individually before the foundation of the world, but that individual choice has implications now that are not simply individualistic, that they're corporate in nature. And so these individual followers of Christ are not simply left to follow Christ as individuals, they're left to follow Christ in the context of a corporate identity. And we'll see, ultimately, that corporate identity is going to be the church. Okay, So that's where we are today. So let's think, first of all, then, what we are. What we are. Now The word here, remember. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. This word remember is not simply a word that is calling us simply to recall, but it's a word that is, is calling us to, to dwell on, to ponder with purpose. And the idea of this word is to remember for the purpose of repentance, decision, or gratitude. So it's a strong word he's saying here. And this is Remember, remember what I'm going to tell you. Remember and reflect on the things I'm about to say. And the first thing he wants them to remember is remember that they were Gentiles. Now, obviously, they knew they were Gentiles, but there's something specific that he's identifying here. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. They were identified by the Jews as the uncircumcision. That was not a favorable term, okay? That was a pejorative term. That was a term of... Um, of uh, uh, derision it was, it was a term that was, that was mocking them. And so the idea here is they were to remember that as Gentiles, they were physically and ultimately socially alienated from Israel and from the Jews. But, but Paul subtly even confronts the Jewish mentality that would call them the uncircumcision. Notice what he says here. Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, if there are believers, even today, that have Jewish descent, and they are calling Gentiles, who are believers now, the uncircumcision, they shouldn't be calling them that. That has a carryover effect from being part of the Jewish culture, now into what is considered to be the Christian culture. But he's speaking to the Gentiles, saying, listen, this is what you were. You were Gentiles but also remember that as Gentiles you were deficient you were deficient and there are five ways he lists that they were deficient unlike the Jews first of all there was this spiritual alienation and this is is I I would say the, 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 the whole picture of what's going on here this is spiritual alienation verse 12 remember that you were at one time separated from Christ now That's the first thing we need to notice. They were separated from Christ. What does that mean? It doesn't mean somehow they could have come to Christ, they could have interacted with Christ. No, the whole point was in being outside of Israel, they weren't even considering Christ. What does the word Christ mean? Messiah. Messiah is a Jewish concept, right? And so as Gentiles, they weren't even thinking about Messiah they were separated from the arena, from the realm of even considering that there was a messiah. So they were deficient. They didn't even have the, the, the privilege of thinking that there was one day going to be a messiah because they were not part of that culture that even that, that believed it. Secondly, they were alienated from Israel. Notice what it says alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles were excluded from the people of God. Therefore, the benefits and the promises given in the Old Testament to his exclusive people, which were Israel, were not open to those who were not a part of his covenant community. So they were deficient. They did not have those promises. They did not have those benefits awaiting them or available to them because they were alienated from Israel. The third thing there is they were strangers to the covenant of promise, strangers to the covenant of promise. And that's what it says right there in the text. And notice that Paul says covenants, covenants, plural. So there's the Abrahamic covenant, where God promised that through Abraham he would bless the world through the descendants of Abraham, and in particular, the ultimate fulfillment of that is Christ himself. And then there was the Mosaic covenant, The Mosaic Covenant, which is uh, where all these requirements, and in particular sacrifices that that were necessary to be made, but those sacrifices ultimately pointed to who? Ultimately pointed to Christ. And then, of course, there's the Davidic Covenant that talked about um, this coming king through the line uh, of David. All these covenants that we could spend far more time on were outside of the reach of the Gentile. They did not have that blessing. They did not have that promise. They did not have that mindset. So they were deficient. And the result of that that reality is that they were without hope. This alienation, this exclusion, this ostracizing left them without hope. And ultimately, they had no way to God. They were without God. This was their ultimate condition. They were without God. So you see what Paul is doing here. He's establishing the fact that, listen, as Gentiles, you didn't even have a trajectory to God. You were kept out of even considering and comprehending a Messiah. You were kept out of this idea of blessing and privilege that came uh, because of that Messiah or because of the God of Israel. You were kept out of these covenant promises. And you're without hope, and you are without God. And friends, that is is not a good place to be. So once again, just like he was in verses 1 through 3, revealing the nature of mankind more in an individual way, walking dead zombies, so to speak, to God. Here he's speaking to the Gentiles as a corporate group, saying, listen, this is your condition. This is what you were. You were Gentiles, and as Gentiles, you were deficient. But then, I want you to notice in verses one through three, what we found again in verse four, those two beautiful words. Remember? Look at verse four of chapter two. But God. I mean, here's their condition. Here's who you were. But God. And then he goes on, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our, transgra- our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you have this but God language and then, then this, this kind of revelation of what God has done. Now here in um, In chapter 2 and in the the, the passage that we're looking at now, um, we find something different going on. It's not but God, but it's but now. It's the same kind of transition, but now in Christ. Before it was but God, now it's but now in Christ. This is what Christ has done for you, right? So these alienated strangers without claim, without hope of God... Are, are coming face to face with what Jesus Christ has done for them. And so now what Paul is saying is this. Remember that you were Gentiles, but you were brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what the verse says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were uh, once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that expression, far off, encompasses those five realities of how they were deficient. These were the ones that were not a part of Israel. They were far off from Israel, but now, through Christ, they have been brought near. Now, friends, that is wonderful gospel terminology because this bringing near comes by way of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, how did they come near? Well, we certainly see, you know, God is at work in his plan. He calls, he predestines, he redeems, he forgives. But I, wanna, I also want to draw your attention to verse 13 of chapter 1, just to remind yourself from their perspective what was going on. They heard the gospel, and they believed Verse 13, they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and were sealed with the promise of of the Holy Spirit. So this possibility of being far off and brought near could only be accomplished through what Christ did on the cross. When he shed his blood... As the sacrifice necessary to appease God's wrath and to pay the ransom for sin, so we have this parallel kind of imagery, parallel terminology, parallel reality. One more individual, one more corporate, now taking place. One saying, "But God," no one saying, "But this is Christ, and this is what He's doing." All right, so that's that's what we were. Now let's think about what Christ did. What is it that Christ actually did? And here we have the word for, beginning in verse 14. Okay, We've seen that alienated Gentiles uh, were brought near by the blood of Christ, but now Paul invites us to look at the gospel through a magnifying glass, so to speak. He's kind of taking us closer to, to look at it in more detail, to examine in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a closer way to learn about uh, this, this Christ, who he really is, and what he has done. And to do that, again, he brings up this hostility, peace language. And there had been hostility between Jews and Gentiles through the years. But through Christ and through the cross, something has changed. Let's notice how he begins now talking about what what Christ has done. Verse 14, for he himself is our what? He's our peace. He's our peace. So first of all, let's just notice that Christ... Is our peace? In this statement, Paul is once again drawing the Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. Right? He was talking about the Gentiles, but now he says, "For he himself is what our peace." And this has been a pattern of his. He talks about you, and then he talks about us, and then he talks about our. He's bringing them all together, saying, "This is kind of all of us now together." Christ is. Our peace. And this is typical of, of the Old Testament Gentile appeal. Listen to Isaiah 57 verse 19. Isaiah says, maybe God's speaking through Isaiah, says, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. To the far and to the near. This is Old Testament, speaking about the far and the near. Same language, drawing them together. There was always a gospel appeal, even to the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And it was on the lips of Peter in his sermon in Jerusalem at Pentecost. You may want to turn to uh, the book there of Acts, and Acts chapter 2, and verse 38 and 39, just so that you can see it. Peter is speaking in a context where there are people from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem. That's one of the unique things about Pentecost. It lists all these different places where people were from. And when he preached, people then scattered and took the news of that gospel to those various places. And here's what Peter says, verse 38 of Acts chapter 2. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, what? Far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Interesting language there, right? The promises, those things that they were deficient in, are now, Peter says, for all those who are afar off, who have been called to himself. And that's language again. We're we talking about calling language for chapter one, what God has done. Okay? So, when this passage tells us that Christ is our peace, what does it mean? What is Paul getting at? And we often talk about peace as that which brings two um, two opposing factions together, and the person we talk about who brings those two factions together and brings some reconciliation is called the peacemaker. And certainly, God through Jesus is bringing two factions together. But not simply to make a judgment and not simply to reconcile their grievances. There is something far greater that is going on here. Something new. Jesus is himself the peace. He is our peace. In other words, the place where this new peace can be found is through him. And in him, that the Jews are brought together. In other words, when the Jews and the Gentiles are coming together to find peace, that peace can only come through one place, and that is Jesus himself. He, Jesus, is taking the two groups together and recreating them into one new man. And hear this, there is as a result no more Jew or Israel in his eyes. There is no more Gentile. There is no, uh, no more distinction between, I want to say, the distinctions of that day. There is now a new man. Now, friends, this is important because Paul is writing to Ephesians who are in two different groups. And in the early church, there was always a struggle between those that were Jews. I shouldn't say always. There was a struggle between those who were Jews and those who were Gentiles. And there was often division. And so Paul is speaking now to the Gentiles, but by virtue of speaking to the Gentiles, who's he also speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews, because they're listening to the same letter. And so this instruction is hitting the ears of the Jews, who identify themselves as the circumcision, and those who are the Gentiles, you know, uh, de- derogatorily addressed as the uncircumcision, but now what God is saying through Paul is, listen, I am bringing you together through this one who is peace, himself is peace. So how did Christ, our peace, accomplish that? He accomplished it now by being the peacemaker. So Christ, our peace, is the peacemaker. And notice what it says here. First of all, we'll see what he did. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh The dividing wall of hostility. The in his flesh is a reference to what took place on the cross. He himself in his flesh hung on the cross. He himself in his flesh bled and died as that sacrifice. That's the idea of that expression. But what did he do? He made them one by breaking something down. And what was it that he broke down? It was a wall of hostility, a barrier, a divider. Now, what is it that Paul could be talking about here? What could be the wall of hostility? What could be the barrier? There are some differences of opinion um, that, uh, as to what this could be. Let me give you, though, four, four walls that I actually see in this context. Here's the first wall, and that's the wall of circumcision. Circumcision was a dividing line between you are a Jew or you're not a Jew. And it had implications. And once you are identified as either one or the other, either circumcised or not circumcised, in someone's mentality, you were put into a category. So it was a dividing line. And it had the result of physical and social um, alienation. The second wall of hostility would be the, the law, but in particular, the ceremonial law, Not the moral law. We need to make a distinction between the two. The moral law basically is God's character. It would be the commandments about moral realities. Um, What is true of his very nature. Uh, What is reflected in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. uh, Bearing false witness. His, His moral law never changes. But the ceremonial law described the commandments that the Jews were given to practice what God had called them to. So these were things like the offering of sacrifices, the necessity of circumcision, the the keeping of the the, feasts, what they could eat, what they couldn't eat, where they could eat, where they couldn't eat. That's a lot of ceremonial things that were going on there. And that was a wall of division, but that was removed Okay so this is what he's saying who has made us both one and has broken down the in his flesh by virtue of the cross by virtue of being that sacrifice the dividing wall of hostility just think about this if Jesus is the sacrifice once for all does there need to be any more sacrifice no it's done the sacrifice has been paid. There's no perpetual sacrifice. There's no re-sacrificing going on. The sacrifice has been paid, has been accomplished. And so he's breaking down that wall. So the circumcision, there's a ceremonial law. Then there's the temple wall. Now the question here is this. Did the people in Ephesus even know about the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem? Did they even comprehend that there was this Gentile court, and there was this uh, court of Israel, and Gentiles could not enter the court of Israel. There, I mean, they, we're talking about a dividing wall. Anyone ever been to the, the wall at the temple in Jerusalem? And um, you know, if you were if you were a, a lady, you had to go into the lady section, and if you were a guy, you had to go to the guy. But even then, you had to be respectful. As a guy, you had to cover your head. And uh, as I recall, it was almost like a like a French fry little. little box thing. I mean, that's what it looked like, and you put it on your head, and you went in there. Well, (coughs) the the, the division that took place there was the court of the Gentiles, And, and, and in that day there was a sign, the historians show us, there was a sign on that court of Israel speaking to those who were the Gentiles that said this, no Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's what you call a warning, okay? That's what you call a dividing wall of hostility, literally, okay? So is that what Paul is talking about, all right? Some feel very, very strong that it is, and I think there certainly may be an allusion to that, um, but there's also one more dividing wall, and that would be what, uh, what we find took place when Jesus Christ died on the cross, and that was the veil of the temple was torn in two. Okay, The the, the veil separated the temple from the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the place into which the holy priest went once a year to offer incense up to God and sacrifice to God in the Holy of Holies. One year, if you remember the story, Oftentimes what they would do is they would wrap his ankle with a rope just in case he died in the process because it was such a grand thing. All right. This is where this is this was the holy of holies. When the, the the veil of the temple was torn in two, it was symbolic to say that now, because of the sacrifice that has been made, because the wrath of God has been satisfied on the Son of God, now we have freedom to boldly access the throne of grace, which is talking there about that holy of holies. So as believers now, we don't go through a priest, a mediator. Mediator is Jesus Christ. We now have freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, having said that, I want you to see in our passage here, in particular, I want you to see in verse 18 where this is alluded to. For through him, We both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's that word access. This is what has been accomplished for us. Okay, now, I I, I really would lean toward the fact of of the the significance of the dividing of the physical wall as being very, very much in the, the thinking and the mind of Paul, and in particular, if he's speaking to a context where there are Jews, those Jews certainly would know about that. And they probably would use that as a basis even for some of their argumentation about being separated from the Gentiles. And certainly he's speaking here about the, um, the, the, the ceremonial law because what we have next is him explaining that the fact that he abolished that. But the point is this, and ultimately, this is what's going on that Jesus, being our peace, came as a peacemaker. And coming as a peacemaker, what did he do? He brought Jews and Gentiles together to be one man by breaking down the barrier that was between them, this wall of hostility. So he is the peacemaker. That is what he did. The question now is how did he do that? And so we get a little bit more specific about how he did that. I've mentioned the first thing, and that is this. He abolished the ceremonial law, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now certainly what we see here, these are commandments, these are ordinances, these are things that that were communicated to the Jews about what they should do and, and how they should do it, more the ceremonial side of things, not the moral side of things. He abolished the ceremonial law. Now, I understand, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, didn't I read somewhere in the Bible that Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? And so, if you're thinking that way, good thinking, because you're right. You might want to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did say something to that effect. So let's look at that so that we don't have any confusion about what's going on here. Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus is speaking and he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. So now you're like, well how do you reconcile these two things? I didn't come to abolish them and now Paul says in his letter that Jesus Christ abolished the law, what's going on here? Okay, well let's think through this a little bit. Jesus, first of all, fulfilled the law by satisfying the law's requirements. So that's the idea of what he's talking about there in Matthew chapter 5. He is the only man who could satisfy the law's requirements by being that son, that savior, that was sinless. And be that sacrifice once for all. He fulfilled the law by showing us that it could only be satisfied. The only person that could actually meet the requirements that the law demanded was himself. And so he fulfilled it. Okay, He wasn't coming to wipe away the law in that context. He's coming to show how he is the only one that can fulfill it. Right. That's the first part there. Now as we move to Ephesians, the idea there is that Jesus didn't abolish the moral law. He was abolishing the ceremonial law. Friends, that's that's, that's why we don't celebrate the feasts okay, like they did in the Old Testament. That's why we don't don't practice the the requirements of the ceremonial law in the context of the church anymore. Certainly there are things that, that spill over that are... I want to say habits. Do we have any ceremony in the body of Christ? What is it? Communion. All right. Is that a carryover from an Old Testament ceremony? You can make the argument yes, because it was Passover that translated into the Last Supper. Okay, that's they were gathering for what in the upper room? Passover, and He, Jesus Christ, identified this this new thing I want you to do that flowed out of the Passover, but even the Lord's Supper is not a ceremony that we have to go through in order to appease God. It's a huge difference. Sacrifices were made through the years to appease God and ultimately pointing to Jesus being that sacrifice once for all. Okay, So Jesus, in coming now, says, I'm abolishing The law, and he has in mind here not the moral law, but the ceremonial law. Okay? So Jesus, by his death, by his blood, in his flesh, these are all expressions that we find in these few verses. Abolish the ceremonial law. No more required ceremonies, no no more required sacrifices, no more required feasts or celebrations, no more required physical division. When I say the word required, required so that you and I can be in right standing with God because these things have been satisfied. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate baptism, it may be a ceremony ceremony but it is not a ceremony that somehow gets us closer to God or somehow satisfies a requirement that then appeases God. The ceremony of the Lord's Supper is a ceremony of remembrance. Okay, And it takes us back to that core reality of where we are in our walk with God, what he has done, what that means to us. Baptism again. We go through the waters of baptism, not because there's anything mystical going on in baptism. There's not somehow you're getting more spiritual. You're simply being obedient, and you're reflecting to those around you the fact that you're identifying with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So it is a celebration. Okay, If we add some weight of extra grace to either of those things, we have turned those things into something they were not intended to be. Now, that's the first thing. He abolished the ceremonial law. Secondly, he created one new man. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now last night, as I was thinking through this, I was sitting down having a snack and I was eating some cheese. Some Monterey cheddar Cheese and I thought to myself, ah, you have Monterey and you have cheddar that comes together in this wonderful cheese. And when you look at the block of cheese, it has some different coloring to it, right? It's kind of marbled. But you say, oh, this was one block of cheese, right? Now, that picture of, of Monterey Jack and cheddar cheese coming together in this one block is not what is pictured here, okay? What we have here is not two groups coming together and somehow being squeezed together like Plato to become one. What we have is two coming together that are now recreated into a completely, totally fresh, new thing, new man called the church. And friends, that's why as we gather as the church, it doesn't matter what country you're from, it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't... It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile because our identity is no longer found in those realities. Our identity is found in being a follower of Christ. Now, friends, it's so critically important that we recognize that. And I'm reminded again of my brother from Palestine who is struggling with believers in Israel that are Zionist Jews. And they see the Jews as being the favored ones within the body of Christ, And I'm reading Ephesians, and I'm saying, what don't they get about this new man? Okay? Now, friends, this is important. Now, understand, this is important to the Ephesian people, right? Because there were Jews and there were Gentiles. And Paul is having to clarify that. This is important for us because no matter where you're from, no no matter what your history is, if you step through the threshold of the cross... By virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for you and you believed after you heard that and you entered into the family of God, your identity is not an identity from your past life. Your identity is now because you are part of God's family, his church. And when we start bringing things from our past to identify who we are, then we're clouding things up. Now, I'm all for Heritage, I'm all for culture. I am looking forward to next week's potluck because I'm expecting things from all over the world to show up. It's a wonderful thing. Culture's wonderful, but you know what? We gather as one church, united in Christ. This is our new community. This is, this is a reality, friends, that had never, ever existed before until Christ came and died on the cross, He instituted the church. And and if you're a believer, this is what you are a part of. So not only did he abolish the ceremonial law, create one new man, that would be the church, he also reconciled Jews and Gentiles to God. Look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God In one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's two kinds of hostility that have been talked about in this passage. There's a horizontal hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's also a vertical hostility, and that is a hostility between God and man. And you might want to say, as you read verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. In other words... Jews and Gentiles are together as one unit being reconciled to God. You get that? So here's the picture, right? Imagine, Imagine the podium is the cross. Before the cross, what you have is you have Jew, you have Gentile, and they're coming together at the cross. They were distinct. The Jews had privileges. The Gentiles were deficient in those privileges. In coming to the cross where Jesus shed his blood... And he, he was, uh, gave of his flesh where he died uh, in our place. By virtue of believing in that gospel, they are now created afresh, anew, together into one new man. You get that picture there, right? And together now, they are reconciled to God. They've been reconciled to each other through the cross, but through the cross, they're also reconciled to God, Now friends, this is all part of Jesus being our peacemaker. These are implications of what took place on the cross that Paul is saying to this church that has some some variety of peoples, listen, you need to see who you are in Christ. Now this peace that Paul is talking about is not a peace that takes place on earth between sinning factions. No, it's it's a peace that comes by way of the cross, that tears down barriers of hostility, and bringing different different peoples, at many times hostile to one another, into one body which is called the church. Now we we've said this over and over again. And this is one of the beautiful things about being involved in missions. But I just love the fact that I can travel for you know for twenty something hours, and I can get off the plane and get in a strange car in a strange place with strange smells and different people, and I can go to a building where there are followers of Christ gathered and I am now walking into the church. It's just absolutely amazing. And if you've never had that experience, let me encourage you to have that experience because the body of Christ is united by its identity in Christ. And so all sorts of cultural things are bouncing around, but we are united because we worship the same God and it's absolutely amazing. But see, that is, that is the peace that we have. It's not a peace that comes by way of, of, of people getting together and trying to sort things out. It is a peace that comes through the cross as a result of the cross. So it is a peace that comes through the cross that ultimately reconciles us to God. It isn't an earthly peace that the world preaches and is attempting in vain to achieve. You know, I, I'm all for living in peace with my neighbors, okay? I'm all for, you know, if if Canada decided they wanted to come and, I don't know, take over Alaska, I, I you know what? I I, I want to live in peace. If they entered into, I kind of joked you know the other day that that they came and they um they, they took over Goat Island. Now you wouldn't know what Goat Island is unless you've been to Niagara Falls, and it's actually the area on the United States side where, where there's an island that it's the falls, right? And so there's some kind of division about that. But, you know, Canadians came over and took that, right? Um, I, I wouldn't want that. I would want peace. We want peace. But the peace that's being talked about here is not this earthly kind of peace. It's a peace that has eternal implications, not temporary implications. And it's a peace that drives us and moves us to live our lives in a way that is confident because we are at peace with God. And no matter what happens to us, we know that his hand is at work with us. So the peace that is visible for all to see in the church is because of Jesus and because of what he did on the cross. So here is Jesus, our peace. He is our peacemaker, but notice also he is the peace preacher. Verse 17, and he came, and what? He preached peace. To who? To you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were where? Near. Now, I can just imagine as this is being read and the Jews are all kind of, you know, the Jewish Christians are all sitting together in their holy huddle, right? And they're listening to what is being read by the Apostle Paul. They're thinking to themselves, man, I know he's speaking to the Gentiles, but wow, he is hitting us hard. Because this message of peace was preached to the Gentiles. Yeah, they need that. But I preached it also to those who were near. You see... The Jews needed the gospel just as much as the Gentiles needed the gospel. And that's what he's saying here. This is what I have done. I have preached this peace to those who are far off those who are near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So once again, we see the activity here of the Trinity. I just want to highlight this because it's important for us to see this at work. We have access through Christ. That would be the cross. We have access in or by the Spirit who sealed our inheritance and who now is at work in and through the body of Christ. Now we've fleshed out more in this letter. And then we have access to the Father to whom we are reconciled. So this this work of the Trinity in our salvation and in, in, in this peace that, that he gives us in this development of this new man, the church has been fashioned and shaped and is still fashioned and shaped by the Trinity. John Stott's words are helpful here. He says this. Although reconciliation is an event that's what takes place at the cross access is the continuing relationship to which it leads. So this access is not a one-time access. See, this is the cross, again, having come to the cross, I have been reconciled to him, and now because I've been reconciled to him, the barrier has been removed, my sin has been paid for, and I have access, ongoing, daily access to the Father, by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done, and I have the Holy Spirit who is at work in me, working on me, growing me, strengthening me, and reminding me, hey, listen, you don't don't have to shy away from God because you have freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace and restore your relationship with him. Friends, that that is such good news. Not only are we reconciled, but we have access to him. Now, Listen to Romans 5, 1 and 2. In fact, turn to Romans 5, 1 and 2. I want you to see how, how this language and these truths all work together in God's Word. Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Again, Paul is writing this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there's that reconciliation. We have what? Peace with God through whom? our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained what? Access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What was it that the Gentiles didn't have any of? They didn't have hope. But now through the cross, they have hope. See, all this language, this similar language that Paul is using as he's writing to the Romans. And then back in Ephesians chapter 3, and verse 12, it says this, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. <laughs> My friends, if, if we are one place with the Gentiles, which I think most of us were, through the cross now, in a place of this alienation, we now through the cross have access And that means that we can boldly, confidently, with joy, come before God. See the magnitude of that. What you were, what Christ has done. This is how he did it. And that leads us then to the last thing, and that is what we are now. Well, what are we now? He's already mentioned that he's created this new man. This new man, of course, is the church And so all of what Paul has been saying really is driving his readers to the reality of the the next few verses, and there's some just key things that he says here. What We were, took us to what Christ did, which naturally takes us to the place of considering what we are now in Christ. And he begins with, uh, he reveals to us here three pictures of the new man or this church. And he starts out by saying, you are... No longer strangers and aliens. Just think about that. You, by virtue of the cross, are no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. But this is what you are. First of all, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You who were once far off, who did not have a covenant family, now have a covenant family, not with Israel, but with the saints. Some of you know that um, I've had a, 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 a different background, different heritage. My mom is American, my dad was English. I was born in Israel. Um, so at one point in time I had two passports. I had a British passport because my dad is English. I had an American passport, or a U.S. passport because my mom was American. And if I wanted to, I could get myself an Israeli passport. But the thing is, a passport doesn't necessarily give you citizenship. It gives you access. And what God tells us here is not just that we have access into this new family. It's that we are citizens with full rights in this family. So I could consider myself... You know, a, a citizen of Israel, or, or I would have rights to that, but I would have to actually go through the process of citizenship. And by virtue of the cross, as we enter into this, this new man, this church, we enter into a new family where we are full and complete and total citizens with full right, rights and standings in him. So we've moved then from alienation. To standing as citizens with full rights. Again, just absolutely staggering. Now, these citizens who have full rights, we will see as the letter unfolds, also have responsibilities as citizens. Comes with the territory of the citizenship. I kind of misspoke here, but now the next thing is this we have a new family, we have a new citizenship, a new family. So, having been described as strangers who are away from home, these new citizens can now say they have found a new family and are at home. It says here, and members of the household of God. This home is described as a household where we can feel safe, where we can feel loved, where we can let our hair down and still be accepted. I mean, listen, all of you right now, as you come to church, are are putting on some kind of a, a front. When you walk through the when you walk through the, you know the threshold of, of, of the door of your house, you know, you, you take off your nice clothes, you throw on the, the lazy outfit and bleh, right? I mean, is, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean there's there's something about home that makes you kind of just just kind of be who you really are, so to speak. It's wonderful though that we are part of a family where we we, we should be, we should be okay to be kind of transparent and open, and raw, with one another, about the things that we're struggling with, the things that we're facing, because we're family, it's a new family, okay, um, so it, it shouldn't be that unusual, I mean, next week, I'll come with my pajamas on, right, I mean, th- that's not what I'm saying, but it's the attitude of saying, hey, listen, you know, I'm I'm struggling, and so so many times within the church, we, we put on this front, and we, we expect people to play this facade game, and we're when we really need just to kind of be able to talk frankly to one another and just say, "Listen, I'm really struggling with this sin in my life," and not not allow that that struggle to be painted as some kind of a judgmental thing that puts you into a category, but just saying, "You know what? I want to pray for you. I want to help you." Okay, and that's the family dynamic that is going on. And you also get to wash the dishes every once in a while too. That's all part of family life. All right. Um, number number three here is this: We're all part of a new Temple, a new temple. We are all a part of that new temple. This is the spiritual dynamic. We've had the political, we've had the, the domestic, we've had now the spiritual, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And So we, we need to read these two verses in light of the hostility of the temple. The very place that we were, that we were once not allowed to enter not only do we enter, but we are. We are that household. We are that temple. We've gone from being kept out to being it in this imagery here. So this, this, this holy of holies, this temple is replaced by every one of us who have been called redeemed, forgiven, and sealed with inheritance. We've been joined together, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all different kinds of races, to become a new temple in the Lord. Again, a picture of the church. And it's in that temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Staggering, isn't it? Now friends, this is what he was saying to the Ephesian church that were divided because they were Gentiles and Jews, but he's saying that to us too. See the magnity, the beauty, the wonder of where you once were and where you are now. Yes, you were and are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, but that workmanship is also part of the church and you are part of this wonderful church this this new family this new citizenship and this now part of this new temple now those are three pictures now let's circle around there's three characteristics that he gives that are really important for us to comprehend too three characteristics in these verses we see a foundation we see a cornerstone we see the building materials first of all I want you to notice in the flow of how he how he reveals it. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Verse twenty, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now we understand who the apostles are. Those are basically the disciples, and you can add Paul to that group. They were the ones who saw Christ. They were the ones that interacted with Christ. They were the ones that that took the. The, the, the beginnings of the church and spread the gospel for. But they were also in that group, um, and above, beyond that group, they were also prophets. Now, the question here is, are these prophets being uh, talked about Old Testament prophets or are they New Testament prophets? Now, um, I believe in the context here, what Paul is identifying are not Old Testament prophets but New Testament prophets. Look at chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6, and I'll just show you why, okay? When you read this, you can perceive my insight, I'm reading at verse 4 here, into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now revealed, been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there are these New Testament prophets that were, were benefited by the revelation of this mystery of God, the gospel. And they then spread it out. Verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Well, we're just reading about that. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ in Jesus through the gospel. So you have these apostles and prophets who then were the ones that made up what we call the New Testament. Okay? They're the ones that wrote it. They're the ones that that God worked through to accomplish this writing of the New Testament. So this this gospel had been revealed to them, and this gospel now has been laid out for us in the, the writings of these apostles and prophets so that we now have this New Testament. It is their teaching that God has called the church to guard, proclaim, and obey. It is their teaching that is foundational to God's new people. And without their teaching, the church has no foundation. Now, what's, what's important for us to recognize here is that they don't stand alone. Even the foundation of the apostles and prophets need an anchor, and that anchor then is explained for us as Jesus, who is the cornerstone, right? He is the cornerstone. Now, when it comes to construction, there's a need for a cornerstone. That cornerstone is the place from which everything now kind of unfolds. It itself is part and essential to the foundation. It helps hold the, the building steady. It sets and keeps um, its, its line to be true. So the foundation of the building, or even the materials that are built on the foundation, of, uh, uh, are dependent on the integrity of that cornerstone. That cornerstone is key. And the integrity of that cornerstone is, in, is key for the rest of the building. And so that's what... Paul is identifying here as saying this. Listen, Jesus is our cornerstone. And everything flows now from Jesus out through the apostles and then up as things are being built on that foundation. But we're reminded here of Psalm 118, verse 22, which Jesus quotes a number of times. But it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So here's Jesus, this cornerstone of this foundation and then what we see next is this church that is built upon that foundation and we see that then in verses 21 and 22 again. The church grows as Jews and Gentiles now are one man are built together in Christ, right? In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, Paul is yet to, to really teach us what growth in Christ looks like. That's coming, but we at least see the structure. We see the framework being laid here, okay? So there's a need for a, fo- a, a cornerstone. There's a need for a foundation, and there's a need then for us to build upon that. And so my, my concluding thoughts really kind of ring true with those statements. And I want us to kind of just, first of all, just reflect, even before we get to those, just just where you were and your hopelessness, and your alienation from God, and how, how God through his marvelous redemptive plan drew, your, drew you to himself in incredible ways. All of us could tell an incredible story of how God worked his will in your life to take you to a place where you bowed the knee before him. And it was through a friend, through a mom, through some unusual circumstance. For some people it's a really weird story of God's providence and yet God does things like that but he, he takes us all to the same place and it is to the cross. And through that cross then we have been welcomed into this new creation, the church. And then we need to, we need to be mindful of some of the things related to the church that we're gonna close with right now. Number one, um, I'm calling it this. Um, we need the church, the individual, Workmanship of Christ, in chapter 2, verse 10, naturally leads to the corporate nature of the church. In other words, to be a Christian means to be joined together with other believers who are also part of that church. Not in theory, but in practice. And although scripture does at times talk about the church universal, it is never at the expense of the church local. So Paul is talking about actual believers being joined together to an actual local church. And again, this feeds into what we will see in chapters 4 through 6. We, we were never meant to pursue Christ on our own, to raise our children on our own, to, to sort out our marriages in isolation, to fight the devil and his armies as an army of one. We're joined together, we're built together because God has called us to be his church. So if if you have an attitude of, well, you know, church is kind of optional. You know, I I just need Jesus Christ. You're only getting some of the story correct. Because God has created you to belong to a family. And to be citizens of that family. Yes, with full rights, but also with full responsibilities. So you have a responsibility to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, how can you do that if you're not gathered together? And so on and so forth, right? Number two, we move a tier down here. We need the word, right? We need the word. The word of God is what God has given us by virtue of the apostles and the prophets. It is the word through them that explains to us what this church is to look like, what it's supposed to be. It explains to us also the character and the nature of Christ and what he has done. I mean, yes, the book of Ephesians is amazing, it's it's theological, it's technical, it explains a lot of intricate things, but understand this, it is helping us have a clear understanding of who Christ is and what God has called us to be as his church, and we need it, and if we need it, it's a good thing for us to read it. Now, my birthday is coming up in July, this is not a plug, Um, it's coming up. And one of the things that I probably am going to have to do is to redo my license. And even though I've been driving for many moons, all right, you know, started out with horses, you know, things like that, right? I think I'm probably going to have to, and it will probably be wise for me to read through the booklet again and to remind myself of things that don't even concern me anymore. It doesn't concern me how heavy a child needs to be in a car seat. I don't have a car seat, but I still need to know. Because there may be a day when I do have a car seat, and it's not mine, it's one of yours that I'm taking. You know, I need to read it, and you know what, I just want to encourage you, this is, this, is, this is important for us to hear. God has given us his word so that we can read it. And in reading it, we are, we are able to grow in our understanding of who God is, what he's called us to, but it's, it's also a way that he is growing us and knitting us together. It's one of the reasons why it's great to gather together at things like home group or small groups or talking over God's word at Starbucks or Pete's or places like that so that you can be growing together in the Lord, okay? The final thing is this. We need Christ. Now, the emphasis, I didn't mention this before, but you notice in the passage twice, it says, he himself is our peace, He himself has done that. That is a Greek mechanism to say the attention in all of this passage should be on this. This passage and what is being said is thoroughly and totally Christ centered. It really isn't so much about the Gentiles, it's about Christ and what he has done for the Gentiles, for the Jews. He himself. And so, friends, it's just so important that we, we just do all we can to learn and to grow and to love and to, to worship this one who is our peace. Lord, help us today to continue to wrestle and, and, and simmer and marinate, Lord, on the, the truths of this passage. We were once afar off, but we have been brought near through the blood of the cross. And in so doing, Lord, you have granted us peace, peace with God the Father, the ability of peace with others because we are now one man, one creation, the church. But Lord, you've called us now to live our lives on this foundation and on this cornerstone for your glory. And as we press on in this book, Lord, would you allow this foundational truth to to undergird, Lord, all that you're saying so that we can begin to see how we can build on that foundation in such a way, Lord, that would reflect your work in our lives and our responsibility before you. Thank you, Lord, for just the privilege of opening your word, of studying your word, and Lord, of being your church. We are so blessed to know you. To have you as our Savior. Your precious name. Amen.